We're going to be in John 18 and going to read verses 12 through 27. If you didn't get one, there are bulletins at both entrances with um, outlines on them. They sh- there should be also a printed uh, full copy of the message where I include extra verses and things that I can't um, always mention in the message for sake of time, but you can read those, and those are all on the church website as well for the past um, 23 years, so you can access them there. John 18, Jesus has just been arrested in the garden. So the Roman cohort And the commander and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him and led him to Annas first, for he was father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Now, Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it was expedient for one man to die on behalf of the people. Simon Peter was following Jesus, and so was another disciple. Now, that disciple was known to the high priest and entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. But Peter was standing at the door outside. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the doorkeeper and brought Peter in. Then the slave girl who kept the door said to Peter, You're not also one of this man's disciples, are you? And he said, I am not. Now the slaves and the officers were standing there having made a charcoal fire, for it was cold, and they were warming themselves, and Peter was also with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. Jesus answered him, I've spoken openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together, And I spoke nothing in secret. Why do you question me? Question those who have heard what I spoke to them. They know what I said. When he had said this, one of the officers standing nearby struck Jesus, saying, Is that the way way you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If I have spoken wrongly, testify of the wrong. But if rightly... Why do you strike me? So Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself, so they said to him, You're not also one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the slaves of the high priest, being a relative of the one whose ear Peter cut off, said, Didn't I see you with, or in the garden with him? Peter then denied it again, and immediately a rooster crowed. If you're here today and you've never failed the Lord, then you can leave now because the rest of the message really won't help you or relate to you. Uh, But if you're like the rest of us, then uh, hopefully there's some help and encouragement in this story of Peter's failing the Lord. Whether we do it like Peter, and certainly we don't have it written down for ages and ages to read about, but in some form or another, 
either by unchristlike words or unchristlike behavior, every one of us has joined Peter by saying, I am not a disciple of Jesus Christ. When it comes to opportunities to speak out boldly for Christ, it seems to me that I fail more often than I succeed in those times, usually about an hour after the opportunity has presented itself, my somewhat calcified brain thinks, you know what, I should have said such and such, but by then it's too late to say anything, and so I blew it again. And if you can relate to those kind of failures, or perhaps you've failed the Lord in a more serious way through some sort of colossal failure as a believer, you've disgraced the name of Christ, then I trust that the story of Peter's failure here is of help to you. Um, Some preachers take it and just take the part about Peter and not the part about Jesus' arrest, but I think there's wisdom in the way that the Holy Spirit inspired John to weave these stories together. And it presents this jarring contrast. On the one hand, you have the faithful, calm courage of the Lord Jesus Christ. On the other hand, there's the cowardly compromise of of Peter. Um, And then, along with it, all, all of it, the awful sinfulness of the Jewish leaders in mistreating our Lord. Now, I am not going to attempt this morning, it would take the whole message, to try and harmonize John with Matthew, Mark, and Luke as far as the accounts of Peter's uh, denials of the Lord. If you are interested in that, I put one resource in the printed notes you can search that out with, and there are many others. But I'm not going to get into technicalities in that. I want to focus on the spiritual lessons here and the overall effect of John's weaving these accounts together presents on the one hand the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ and on the other the sinfulness of human hearts. Now to understand this story, we need to have some historical background here. There were two trials of Christ. On the one hand, there was the Jewish trial, And on the other hand, there was the trial before the Roman civil authorities. And each trial had three phases. Uh, uh, And both trials, by the way, were filled with illegality. Um, This was not a just trial um, of, of the Lord Jesus at all. But First of all, the Jewish trial begins with the arraignment before Annas that we see here in our text. Uh, He tried unsuccessfully to get Jesus to incriminate himself. Uh, When he failed at that, he sends Jesus over to Caiaphas, who illegally, in the middle of the night, brought all sorts of false witnesses in to testify against Jesus. They contradicted one another. And in desperation, Caiaphas, and this is not reported in John, but Caiaphas finally uh, adjured Jesus to answer whether he was the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus could not remain silent on that and said, I am, and in the future you'll see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of glory 
and so on, citing Daniel chapter 7. At that point, Caiaphas got the result he wanted. He cried out to those who were with him, you've heard the blasphemy. And uh, so then in the early morning, they gathered the full Sanhedrin together, and they formally condemned Jesus to death. Uh, John 18.24 is John's only reference to those second and third phases of Jesus' trial that the other Gospels go into much more detail on. Now, the Jews did not have the right of capital punishment, and so they had to enlist the Roman authorities if they wanted to get Jesus killed, executed. And so they send him to Pilate, which is what we're reading about in our text here. Pilate, when he hears that Jesus is a Galilean, and John does not report this part, the second phase, he sends Jesus over to Herod, the Tetrarch, who was over Galilee, and he happened to be in Jerusalem at that time. Herod mocks Jesus. Jesus remains silent before him, and after uh, ridiculing him and mistreating him, Herod sends Jesus back to Pilate who renders the final verdict of the trial. Pilate found Jesus to be innocent, but as we'll see next time, he was a weak man. He tried to get him released, but realized politically he could not do it. He finally capitulates to the Jewish mob and its pressure, and he hands Jesus over to be crucified. But both trials were just a sheer mockery of any semblance of justice. This man, Annas, that we encounter in our text, was the high priest from A.D. 6 through 15. Pilate's predecessor had deposed him, the Roman governor had deposed him, but after him, five of his sons, plus his son-in-law, Caiaphas, uh, had served as high priest. Caiaphas was high priest from A.D. Uh, 18 until 36, and so he was high priest in what John calls that year, meaning the year of Jesus' trial and crucifixion. Uh, Both Annas and Caiaphas in our text are referred to as high priest. Um, We do the same thing with our presidents. You know, we would refer to President Clinton or President Bush, even though they are no longer in office Uh, We understand they were president, and so in our text, both Annas and Caiaphas are called high priest. The Jews did not accept Roman rule over Israel, especially in religious matters, and so the the deposition of Annas uh, was an offense to them, and um, also... uh, Annas was supposed to be, the high priest was supposed to be in term for life. And so he really controlled the office, even though he was no longer officially high priest. It was, he was undoubtedly the most politically and religiously influential man in Jerusalem in that time. Annas was a Sadducee, and if you want to know what they were like, I think today's religious liberals are about as close as you can get. The Sadducees denied what Scripture plainly teaches, but they were religious men outwardly, but not because they were subject to Scripture. 
they did not believe in angels or spirits. Uh, they did not believe in the resurrection from the dead. And so really, it was more of a political office than a spiritual office. They were not men who studied the scripture and, and sought to live in submission to it. Annas controlled the lucrative business that took place in the temple. Uh, when Jewish uh, pilgrims would go up to Jerusalem three times a year for the three major feasts, they would have to sacrifice animals. You had a choice. You could bring your animal, which meant <clears throat> transporting an animal all the way from wherever you lived, on foot, of course, to Jerusalem. And when you got there, you had to subject your animal to an inspection by inspectors appointed, of course, by Annas. And Annas set the standard very, very high uh, so that chances are your animal would fail inspection. Uh, then you had brought it in vain, and you had to buy one of the officially approved animals, which, of course, brought more money into Annas's coffers because he had a, a, a stake in the business. Also, if you came into Jerusalem and you had Roman or other foreign coinage, that was no good in the temple. You had to change it into temple money, and for your convenience, there were money changers set up in the temple precincts to make a profit, of course, like when you go to foreign countries now uh, <clears throat> and you get foreign currency. You lose, they win, they get money, and you got to have the money to do business in that country, and so that's what was going on there. And, of course, a percentage of their profits went to Annas, who gave them a license to do this business in the temple. And so, bottom line, Annas and Caiaphas and their ilk were growing fabulously wealthy because every Passover, for example, there would literally be hundreds of thousands of pilgrims who would come up to Jerusalem. So you can do the math with hundreds of thousands pouring in. I mean, it was like the Super Bowl, and, uh, you know, the vendors are doing a healthy business. And so when this upstart prophet from Galilee goes into the temple on two occasions, at the beginning and again at the end of his ministry, and starts upsetting the, the money tables and driving out the vendors of animals, you can understand that Annas and Caiaphas were not happy about his doing that. So they were not seeking the truth about Jesus. And John reminds us of that in verse 14. Now Caiaphas, John says, was the one who had advised the Jews that it was expedient for one man to die on behalf of the people. That refers back to John chapter 11, verses 49 to 53. After Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, the Jewish leaders got together and said, look, if this keeps going on, we're going to lose everybody to Jesus, this upstart Messiah. They should, of course, have recognized him as the true Messiah, but they didn't want to do that. They would lose their comfy position. And they realized then if uh, the whole Jewish system is upended, the Romans are going to move in and take over, and we're going to lose our way of life. And so in that context, Caiaphas 
had said, you know, it's expedient that one man, Jesus, die so that the nation is saved. And John explains in John eleven fifty one. Now, he did not say this on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation. So even though Caiaphas was not a prophet, God put words in his mouth that he didn't intend to uh, prophesy that Jesus would indeed die on behalf of the nation. But both Annas and Caiaphas um, hated Jesus, and they wanted to find a way to kill him because he threatened their power, he threatened their business interests, and yet at the same time, because Jesus was very popular, they had to be careful because they feared the people would riot, and again, that could come back on them. And so uh, they were plotting to get Jesus, and Judas, of course, played right into that. Now, one other historical note that's of interest before we look at Peter's story and how it can help us with our failures. In verse 12, and then John repeats it down in verse 24, he says how Jesus was bound uh, in our day, handcuffed, but they probably tied him with ropes. Um, That was probably customary for prisoners to be bound. And yet, there is supreme irony in them binding Jesus. If you were here last week and we looked at the story in the garden, how when they went to come up to Jesus and he answered them and said, I am, or I am he, I think there was a flash of his glory and over a hundred soldiers fell to the ground. And then they get up and what do they do? They bind him. And I think John has his tongue in cheek there to say, how dumb can you be? You know, um, as if you could bind Jesus. But they uh, bind him, and John is intending to show both the glory of Jesus Christ, who could knock down over a hundred soldiers simply at will, and also the Uh, hardness of heart, the spiritual blindness of those held captive by Satan. John Calvin applied that by saying this. He said, the body of the Son of God was bound that our souls might be loosed from the cords of sin and Satan. There's more, though, to this binding. You remember in the story of Abraham when God called on him to sacrifice his son Isaac. Before he placed him on the altar, it says he bound him. And then in Psalm 118, verse 27, the psalmist says, Bind the festal festival sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. And so just as the Jews would bring their sacrifices first to the priest, and then the priest would, would bind them and put them on the altar, here you have Jesus, the ultimate sacrifice, being bound, brought to the priest, and they would kill him, they think, on behalf of the nation. And then in John eleven fifty two, John adds, and not for the nation only, but in order that he might gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. 
So that's kind of the historical setting, but I want to zero in now on the spiritual lesson for us, and that is this, that even when you fail the Lord, even when you fail the Lord, you can trust in him, the faithful Savior, who never fails. And as I said, John interweaves these accounts of Jesus' faithful calm witness, Peter's cowardly failure, his compromise. Um, One commentator says, Jesus stands up to his questioners and denies nothing, while Peter cowers before his questioners and denies everything. Or another one observed that Jesus' twice-repeated authentication or identification of who he was in the garden, twice Jesus said, I am, I am. And as I pointed out last time, John doesn't want us to miss that. The soldiers missed it, but it's an identification of Jesus as Jehovah, as Yahweh. Uh, And that contrasts with Peter's twice-repeated denial In verse 17, and again in verse 25, he said, I am not. I am not. So you have this this, uh, back and forth contrast going on. Now, as I pointed out, Peter's not alone in failing the Lord, because I think to understand this story, we have to come in and, and identify with Peter in that we've all failed the Lord at one time or another. And again, our failures may not be as dramatic, and certainly they're not as well-known as Peter's failures. Have you ever thanked the Lord you didn't live when the Bible was being written? You could have been on the page, maybe in ignominy. But anyway, um, whether by words or actions, we've all denied Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord. And you think about it, Peter was the leader of the apostles, Peter was um, obviously a committed, loyal follower of Jesus. I just read this morning in Matthew 14, Peter walked on the water, something that no one else except Jesus has ever done. Uh, And yet, here he denies the Lord three times. And so, all of that to say, none of us are immune from denying the Lord. And Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10, 12, let him who stands, or who thinks he stands, take heed that he does not fall. I want to trace four steps in Peter's failure, and often these are involved in our failure. And here's the deal. If you recognize any of these steps in your life, you can cut it off there, and it doesn't have to necessarily come to full-blown failure but it's helpful to recognize them. First of all, I think we fail when we fail to understand God's ways, which are not our ways. At the heart of Peter's problem was he couldn't wrap his mind around a Messiah who suffered and died. He just couldn't get that. You remember that Peter made that God-inspired confession. Jesus asked, who do you say I am? And Peter said, you're the Christ the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you. My Father in heaven did. And then just a moment later, Jesus tells the disciples uh, that I'm going to go up to, the, to Jerusalem and be delivered into the hands of the uh, chief priests and the, the rulers. 
and they're going to mistreat me and crucify me, and then I'll rise again on the third day. And at that point, Peter takes Jesus aside and rebukes him. Says, may it never be, Lord. And then that causes Jesus to give his well-known rebuke of Peter, where he says, get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me, for you're not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. And as the Gospels unfold, more than once, Jesus told the twelve, here's what's going to happen. We're going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be delivered into the hands of sinful men, and I'm going to suffer and die. But they just couldn't get it. Uh, They envisioned a Messiah who would free Jerusalem and Israel from Rome, who would reign on the throne of David, Psalm 2 kind of thing. And they could not envision a suffering Messiah, the Lamb of God, who would be sacrificed for our sins as Isaiah 53 presents him. And it was that persistent failure to understand the mysterious ways of God that um, prompted Peter, I think, in the garden to draw his sword and vainly try to defend Jesus there by whacking off uh, Malchus's ear. And then when Jesus rebuked him, I think Peter probably felt hurt and he felt confused by the whole thing. And so in that state of mind, he wanders into the courtyard there and he's caught off guard through Satan's subtle attack. Uh, It's not a soldier that catches him off guard. It's just the slave girl who's the doorkeeper and Peter denies the Lord. You know, whenever you think, and this has happened to me, God has to work in a certain way. And sometimes I've even put my finger on the chapter and verse. You know, it's got to go this way. Or maybe you're praying and you know it's the will of God to pray a certain way. And it doesn't go that way. You're spiritually vulnerable to temptation. So be on guard. Um, It's easy when you're disappointed and you're confused to succumb to temptation. And uh, so the point is, don't dictate your plan to God. If you don't understand, you still have to submit to him and uh, bring your confusion to the Lord. A second factor in Peter's failure and in ours is that we fail to recognize our own weakness And that means we end up trusting in ourselves and not in the Lord. Peter in, I mean Jesus in Luke 22 warned Peter and said, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But on those occasions, Peter protested and said, Lord, I'm willing to suffer and go to prison and even die for you. And then he even went further in Matthew 26, 33. He puts himself above the other disciples when he protests Even though all may fall away uh, because of you, (laughs) not old Peter. I'll never fall away. And whenever we do that and put ourselves a notch above others, uh, we're in danger spiritually. Trusting in your own commitment and trusting in your own devotion to the Lord is a sure way to slip on the spiritual banana peel and go down. Pride goes before a fall. 
And yet, at the same time, when we're weak and we know we're weak, then we trust in the Lord, and so we're strong, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12. Uh, Probably it was Peter's lack of awareness of his own weakness that drew him into the snare here that Peter, or I mean that Satan set for Peter. We don't know, by the way, who the other disciple is in verses 15 and 16 who gets Peter to come in the door. Uh, I tend to think it was John, but there are some good Bible scholars who disagree with that. Um, But anyway, uh, the focus is not on the other disciple, it's on Peter. So he, he comes into the courtyard here. And uh, as soon as he walks through the entrance, this little slave girl catches him off guard with her question in verse 17. You're not also one of this man's disciples, are you? Notice how the question is phrased. It expects a negative answer. And so Peter goes along with it and says, no, I'm not. I'm not. Now, Probably, if Peter's like me at that point, he's kicking himself mentally as he goes on into the courtyard. But maybe he dismissed it by thinking, well, she's just a slave girl. What difference does it make? And so he blew off his failure. Next, though, we find him warming himself by the fire along with the slaves and officers of the temple guard. Now, the slaves and officers were not aggressive enemies of Jesus. So again, you know, Peter's not on guard there. Uh, These were just employees. They were doing their job. You know, they were hired to do what they're doing. And so they're standing around the fire. And probably their conversation was about, uh, do you think we'll get a raise this year? And what do you think about this news? And what do you think about that news? And what's going on? And blah, blah, blah. And so they're making all this small talk. And Peter is standing there with them. But, you know, they're being indifferent to the most spiritually significant, important event in the history of the world. As the sinless Son of God is about to go to the cross. And so there's this subtle danger that Peter doesn't detect. But to put it this way, Peter's in the world when he's standing there. And the world isn't concerned about Christ and the things of God. The world's concerned about their things. And that's what's going on here. And in that context, as they're warming themselves by the fire, verse 25, one of them looks at Peter and says, You're not also one of his disciples, are you? Again, phrasing, expecting the negative answer. And Peter replies again, I am not. The lesson there is, I think, be on guard when you're in the world and remember your purpose. You're not there to join the world in their thing. You're there to represent Christ. And so you have to keep that in mind at all times. You're there as a witness And if you're not careful at an unguarded moment, somebody will say something and you compromise your witness. The third way we fail is we fail to recognize the spiritual battle that we're engaged in. And so we fail to pray as we should. Peter didn't understand, even though Jesus warned him, that Satan was out to get him. 
And that hour, as Jesus said, belongs to the power of darkness. So this is a time when Peter should have been on guard. Jesus came to him three times in the garden and said, Watch and pray that you don't fall into temptation. And Peter, you know, he was snoring and uh, he was not watching and praying. And so when the crisis hits in the garden, Peter doesn't react with weapons that are for spiritual warfare. He draws out the weapon of the flesh, his sword, and swings at Malchus. But then after that, he blindly wanders into the path of temptation here in the high priest's courtyard. But so often, like Peter, we're spiritually dull to situations because we failed in advance to pray. You miss your quiet time a few mornings, and you get to work, and uh, you aren't thinking spiritually, and then some fellow employee maybe makes a derogatory comment or puts you down, and you react in anger, and you just blew your witness. Whereas if you'd been in prayer that day and in the Word, you'd recognize, I'm going into the battlefield, and you'd have your shield of faith up, and, and you'd be ready there to respond to it in a Christ-like manner. So that's why we often fail. And then the last reason here, uh, we fail to fear God more than we fear people. Uh, The fear of man was behind Peter's third denial in verse 26. One of the slaves of the high priest, being a relative of the one whose ear Peter cut off, said, didn't I see you in the garden with him? And I think at that point, Peter panicked because he realized this guy could turn me into the authorities and the place was swarming with soldiers and I could be arrested and I would be on trial. And so in fear, he denies Christ again. And then the rooster crows. That's all John mentions to remind us of Jesus' words back in chapter 13. Luke includes a detail that the other gospels don't. And every time I read it, it just pierces my heart. And I'm sure it pierced Peter's heart even more. It says, at that moment, Jesus turned and looked at Peter across the courtyard. He looked at Peter. And it says, Peter went out and wept bitterly. He wept bitterly. You know, to some extent, all of us want the approval of people. But here's the deal. When you start worrying about what other people think, your focus is in the wrong place. Because our primary focus should be, what does God think? What does God think? Am I pleasing God with my thoughts, with my words, with my actions? And Proverbs 29:25 says, The fear of man brings a snare, but he who trusts in the Lord will be exalted. Now, there's a scary warning that Jesus gives in Matthew 10.33. He says this, Whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Yikes. That applies to all of us, doesn't it? We've all denied Christ either by word or by action before men. But... Thankfully, the story of Peter shows us that there's grace 
there's grace. Because as we'll see in John 21, the Lord restores Peter. And then, as you know, in the book of Acts, he uses Peter to preach that great sermon on the day of Pentecost when 3,000 are saved. And so the message here is one of grace and hope for all of us who have failed, that we can always trust in our faithful Savior, and Jesus never fails. So you can always come back to him, always, and receive mercy. There's an interesting fact in the Greek text of John chapter 12, 18, verse 12, or excuse me, John 18, 18. See the word charcoal fire? That word in Greek only occurs one other place in the New Testament. You know where it is? In chapter 21, it says Jesus had kindled a charcoal fire. He's risen from the dead. He had kindled a charcoal fire on the beach. And Peter and the other disciples come in from their fishing trip after Jesus helps them catch a lot of fish. And he cooks breakfast for them there on that fire. And it's in that context that he restores Peter. And so I think the message is that if you failed Jesus at the fire of temptation, as Peter did, there's always the fire of breakfast fellowship where he invites you back and he restores you when you come to him. Let me just point out Jesus's calm courage, and I have to just touch on these points, but each one of these points corresponds to the four points of failure that I just mentioned with Peter. First of all, Jesus knew the Father's plan, and he submitted to it, even though it was painfully difficult. We saw that Peter, he failed because he didn't understand God's ways, and so he couldn't submit to what was going on. Jesus knew very clearly he was sent for one purpose, to go to the cross, and it was the cup the Father had given him, and so he courageously faced it. In John 6:38, Jesus was very clear. He said, For I've come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. And that will, of course, was the cross. Secondly, Jesus always depended on the Father. Peter failed because he didn't recognize his own weakness, and so he trusted in himself. Jesus, as a man, to show us how we, as humans, are to live, always trusted in the Father. And so he said in John 5:19, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. And so Jesus conquered the enemy, not by trusting in his humanity, but by trusting in his Father. Thirdly, Jesus knew the enemy, and he wrestled in prayer to gain the victory before the crisis hit in the garden. Peter, as we saw, failed to recognize the spiritual battle, and so he slept instead of prayed. But Jesus there was wrestling and won the victory in the garden in prayer as he overcame the powers of darkness, and so he could conquer the enemy. And then finally, Jesus feared God and not man, And so he bore faithful witness to these sinners. As we saw, Peter feared man, not God, and he failed as a witness. But Jesus fears God and not these in power. 
and so he bears faithful witness to them. Now, just when, when Annas here, in verse 19, questions Jesus about his disciples and his teaching, it would be a mistake to think that he's searching for truth. He's trying to get Jesus to incriminate himself as a witness. He's trying to get, dig up some dirt on him and to nail him by saying, Ah, you're an insurrectionist. Uh, under Jewish law, a prisoner or an accused would not be called on to testify on the stand. Uh, you had to bring witnesses. And he couldn't be convicted except by two or three uh, witnesses who agreed. And so when Jesus replies here to Annas in verses 20 and 21, what he's doing is exposing Annas's obviously illegal approach to this trial. He's assuming Jesus is guilty, not innocent. He is trying to get the prisoner to incriminate himself. And so, in effect, Jesus is saying, you know, Annas, if you were really interested in my teaching, it's out there. I've taught openly in the synagogues. I've taught openly in the temple. There's plenty of people out there that have had opportunity to hear it. But you're proceeding illegally in this, and you know it by trying to get me to speak out. Call your witnesses. That's what Jesus is saying. You've prejudged my case. You're not looking for truth. You're just trying to trump up charges. Well, the officer who's standing near Jesus realizes that his boss has just been put down, and he wants to make points with his boss, and so he hauls off and hits Jesus, who is bound, in the face. And that was illegal, again, under Jewish law. He's siding with the wrong boss, I might add. Uh, he should have been siding with Jesus, but instead he's siding with Annas. And rather than retaliating, remember the Apostle Paul under similar circumstances in the book of Acts said, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. And then he had to apologize. Jesus doesn't do that. He calmly replies, verse 23, if I have spoken wrongly, then testify of the wrong. But if rightly, why do you strike me? And so Christ's witness to these hypocrites was designed to convict them of their sin. And might I just add, we often fail at witness because we tiptoe around sin. Oh, God loves you, has a wonderful plan for your life. Yeah, yeah, you're a sinner. But, you know, Christ died for your sin, and we move on, and we try to close the deal too quickly. I believe that that's one reason why there's not so much deep true conversion in our day is people are not convicted of their sin. And if you're not convicted of your sin, salvation isn't about having a happy marriage and, you know, raising wonderful kids and living a successful life. It's about being delivered from the wrath of God that is on us because we've sinned. And until a person realizes, I am a guilty sinner, they don't need a Savior. And so Jesus here is convicting them of their sin. And, and let me point this out too. The measure of effective witness is not whether a person prays the prayer. As far as we know, neither Annas nor the one who hit Jesus in the face ever repented, but Christ bore faithful witness to them, and they on Judgment Day will be without excuse. 
the point of all of this is because Jesus is faithful and Jesus never fails, we can always trust him. We can always come to him even when we've failed. Now, one final thing to note is there is no guarantee that if you are a faithful witness for Christ, he's going to protect you from persecution. No guarantee at all. I just read the recent Voice of the Martyrs magazine about faithful witnesses who got their heads cut off because they said, I'm a Christian, not a Muslim. And here Jesus was faithful, and yet he dies this horrible death. And here's the warning that the Lord gives, or the encouragement that the Lord gives the church in Smyrna in Revelation 2.10. He says, do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is going to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested, and you will have tribulation for ten days. That's a um, phrase that means a complete length of time in God's sight. Here's the encouragement. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. And so when we bear witness for Christ, we need to keep in mind these people are hardened in their hearts. They are darkened in their understanding. They're apart from the life of God. And unless the Holy Spirit breaks into their heart with the light of the gospel, they will not be saved, and they may well come back against me. And I think we are going to be facing more overt persecution as God's people in the coming years uh, if the Supreme Court decision on homosexual marriage goes the way it looks like it will pretty soon for saying, I believe marriage is between a man and a woman for life. You go to prison for hate crime. It's going to happen. So unlike this conniving and self-serving high priest Annas, we have Jesus here as the faithful high priest. As the book of Hebrews presents him, he sacrificed himself willingly for his sheep. And the message for you and me is, even when you fail as Peter did, he wants to restore you. And you can draw near to him and find grace to help in your time of need. There's one other group, though, in this story I haven't hit very hard, and that is... There are those who put Jesus on trial. And they didn't believe in Christ like Peter did. They thought that they were putting Jesus on trial. But here's the thing. Whenever you put Jesus on trial, you're the one on trial. And keep that in mind again as you witness to people. Sometimes skeptics think they're so smart and uh, that they can put down Jesus and refute Christianity. But... The question that they will need to answer, and we're going to look at this next time as Jesus goes before Pilate, is the question that he asked, Pilate asked the Jews in Matthew 27, 22, what shall I do with Jesus who is called the Christ? That is the question, isn't it? What shall I do with Jesus who is called the Christ? Some prejudge him. Say, out of my life, he's going to interrupt my success and my financial arrangements. That's Annas and Caiaphas. But that's not the only option. We can bow before him and receive him as Lord, and we will find mercy with the Lord for all our sins. 
Dear Father, I pray that you would take your word and apply it to every heart. I don't know the hearts that are here today, but you do. All things are open and laid bare before you. Thank you that you're a God of mercy and grace to sinners who have failed, which is all of us. That the way to the cross is open. That the blood of Jesus cleanses from all sin. And I pray, Lord, that if any are here bearing the load of their own sin, they would come to the cross and realize that Jesus wants to bear it and that his righteousness is available to every sinner who repents and trusts in him. I pray, Lord, for your children, if there are some who have recently fallen into sin, that they would come back to you and experience your mercy. And even for the small sins that we all commit every day, that your mercy and grace would be real with us, that we would keep coming back to Jesus again and again to trust in him. So we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.